if you would like to, we are going to be kind of hinging everything on Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. However, we are only going to really be there right at the beginning, and then I will be taking you all over the place. You might be better served to be writing down the references. They will be up on the screen to be writing them down as opposed to necessarily trying to turn from one to the next throughout the sermon. Uh, this is one of those times where I have chosen to go topical. I don't do this all that often, but we are going to go topical for four to five weeks, depending on how it all plays out. And I've already told you a little bit of the direction that we're going to go with this. The title of, of this message is part one of the case for family integration. Now, we don't normally use the term family integration at Legacy Baptist Church. We typically call ourselves a non-age segregated church. It's a clunky title uh, for to the to the extent that we have to title ourselves or we choose to title ourselves. Family integration is much uh, smoother. It's a little bit more straightforward. And the reason why we've been careful with that is because um, the movement, we, we want to be careful that we're not necessarily lauding ourselves in with the movement known as family integration. That movement uh, has many things in it that uh, we are not fully comfortable with as a church. Uh, all of that is on our website. We're, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit over the next couple weeks. Not so much why we don't associate ourselves with the family integrated church. We're going to be talking about the biblical, historical, practical reasons why we have chosen this particular model for our church. And today is going to really be the biblical foundation of spiritual instruction. We're going to start there, and everything I'm going to say today, by and large, will be, we will agree with those who are in the age-segregated model. Everything that I'm preaching today is something that is entirely in line with what the majority of the pastors and the people in an age-segregated church would agree with, as far as the principles of spiritual instruction. Where we divert with most other churches is in application. When we have the principles of spiritual instruction, what God wants us to do as parents, family, fathers, what God wants us to do as a church, how do we merge those two? And that is where things are going to diverge. So this week, spiritual instruction. Everything that is said with, with a, you know, potential, obviously I can't speak for every church, but the majority of what is said would be agreed with everywhere. And then next week is really where I'm going to give you the historical basis for age segregation, where it came from, why it came about, and the practical theological problems that we have with age segregation that has led us to the conviction of where our church is today. Now, as we do this, let me just say, we at Legacy Baptist Church are a non-age segregated church because we believe it is best. This does not mean by extension, that we think everything else or what everyone else does is explicitly unbiblical or wrong. There are age-segregated ministries which have had true success under their particular leadership and in particular times, places, cultures, societies, regions, and such of emphasizing the proper relationship between parents and children and guiding families into the kind of relationships that foster strong, multi-generational Christians. Our contention is not that if a person is involved in age segregation, they are explicitly doing wrong, but rather that the method is far more of a hindrance to raising godly and spiritually self-aware young people than it is a help. As with any system, any method, any philosophy... 
the philosophy is only as good as its execution, right? While we believe the philosophy of non-age segregation or family integration is a superior philosophy in order to bring about what God's word has commanded us to do as fathers, as families, and as a church, if parents don't get on board with it, uh, it's not going to be any more effective than any other method. Now we'll explore this more as we flesh out the concepts and we'll particularly explore it more next week. This week we're going to begin with the principles of spiritual instruction. Principles of spiritual uh, instruction. And I told you we're going to start in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. And this verse is probably well known to most of you. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is the premise upon which we direct spiritual instruction. It's an ironically debated premise in Christian circles. The question is, is this a principle or is this a promise? Is it a general principle that young people raised up in truth will generally have a better chance of continuing in the truth? Or is this a firm biblical promise that if you train up a child in the way he should go, he will not depart from it? when he is old, that he will still be there when he is old. Well, I'm not going to really be able to answer that question for you today, but I do want to give you some considerations. First, some considerations from Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. In Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, we read this. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. The blessing of having children is espoused in Psalm 127, that there is a blessing to the man who would have children, who would have many children. We see children as a blessing from the Lord, not as a hindrance. We see children as something to be sought after and desired, not as something to be avoided or disregarded. In Psalm 128, we read this in verses 1 through 3. It's a song of degrees. It says, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hand, Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants around thy table. So as David is writing here, he's saying that the man who, in Psalm 127, he says the man who has children is a man who is blessed and a happy man. And then he says the man who fears the Lord is a man who, through the fear of the Lord, will also have a wife and children who are fruitful in the Lord. Who are blessed, who will, of whom he will not be ashamed. We know well that each individual has volition, a free will. Every man, every woman, every child must make their own choice to accept Christ as their Savior and then to follow the Lord. And to lay that, the responsibility for a child's own choices upon the parents is something that the Bible does not do, nor should we. And we need to be careful here. The concept is strongly laid out in Ezekiel 18. In Ezekiel 18, verse 2, there was a proverb that had been going around in Israel. And the proverb was this. God says to them, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set at edge? 
By the time Ezekiel was writing, the nation of Israel was already in captivity. Their final captivity had not yet come, but they were already there. Ezekiel had been removed in the second deportation, and he was outside of the Babylonian capital by the river Kibar in what we could effectively call a refugee camp. And he lived in this refugee camp, and he was writing the prophecies of the Lord. And as he did so, one of the things that the Lord rebuked the nation for is this proverb, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, what the nation that was sent into captivity, that generation of Israel was doing, is they were blaming their forefathers. We're going into captivity because our parents had sinned. We're being killed for our parents' wrongs. We didn't do anything wrong. Our parents did wrong, and now we're in captivity. And God says, why would you say that? And twice in that passage, in Ezekiel 18, he says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The father does not die for the sins of the children. The children do not die for the sins of the father. Every man bears his own sins before God. Now, as we look at the world around us, we understand that from a physical perspective, that's not really the case, is it? Physically speaking, if I fail at my role as a father, it's going to affect my children. Physically speaking, if I fail in my role as a pastor, it's going to affect my congregation. You will have to bear the consequences of the failures of your authority. Physically speaking, that's the case. But God says, spiritually speaking, I don't hold you accountable for the choices and wrongs of someone else spiritually. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And indeed, we find this teaching all throughout Scripture. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. In 2 Kings 14, 6. In the New Testament, in Romans 14, 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Galatians 6, 5. We are responsible for our own sin, for our own choices, not necessarily for the choices of others. But in the scriptures, as we've mentioned, this principle is tempered with other concepts which deserve our consideration. And the first concept which we need to consider as we think about this, the the tension between the fact that we are responsible to raise our children and to raise up the next generation as unto the Lord, and the Word of God says that if we raise them as up unto the Lord, that there will be success, and the fact that every child is yet going to make his or her own decision either to serve the Lord or not. We see, first of all, in these principles of spiritual uh, instruction, not destruction, instruction, God has designed and commanded faith to pass from one generation to the next. This is the way God has designed it to be. God has designed and he has commanded us to pass our faith from one generation to the next. This is, this is what we are called to do. And here's the thing about that. If God has commanded it and God expects it, then will he not provide for it? Will he not bless it? Will he not help? If he expects it and he wants it, then God is in it. And if God is in it, then he'll provide for it and he can make it come to pass. God is not in the business of commanding his people to do things that he's not willing to help them bring to pass. That he does not supernaturally bless their efforts when they align themselves with God's word and obey. That's not how God works. He's not a kind of God that sits up in heaven and says, this is my will for you, and then laughs as we struggle to try to make it happen. He wants us to know his will, and when we're in his will, he wants to help us bring it about. He's on our side. 
And he has commanded and designed that faith be passed from one generation to the next, which means we are already at an advantage in passing our faith down from one generation to the next. Throughout the scriptures, we find God calling for his people to obey with the promise that if they will do so, God will bless the results. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, we see this. God says in verses 26 and 27, Behold, I set before you this day, speaking to the nation of Israel, a blessing and a curse. A blessing if ye obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if ye will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which ye have not known. Obey in faith, blessing. Disobey in faithlessness, curse. Now, we are not under the law. We understand that, that as God was speaking here, he was giving them Mosaic law commandments that we're not accountable for, but the principle applies, does it not? Obey, blessing. Disobey, loss of blessing. Curse. The correlation becomes so strong in the nation of Israel toward the end of the Old Testament that God actually is pretty much daring the people, begging the people to prove him. Prove me. Try, just try obeying me and see what happens. In Malachi chapter 3, God is speaking to them about giving of their tithes and their offerings unto him. And he says this. He says in verses 8 to 10, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me, but ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, he says. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. All the way back to the, to the Mosaic law, when God gave it, he said, look, if, if you give, I will be sure that there's food on your table. If you tithe as you're supposed to tithe, if you uh, take the seventh year off, the seventh day off for the Sabbath, if you give the lamb the seventh year Sabbath, I will bless that. I will bless you. You don't have to worry about it. And all the way into Malachi, the very end of the Old Testament, God says, look, try me, prove me, see if it's not true. See if you do your part, if I won't do mine. But you got to step out first. I won't do my part till you do yours. You got to step out in faith. You've got to believe it. And if you believe it and you do it, I will prove myself to you. Just try me. Prove me. I will be faithful. And this principle plays into raising our children as well. Passing the faith from one generation to the next. If we're commanded to do it, and we do it God's way, you just watch and see if God won't bless it. You just watch and see if God won't help. If God won't make up the difference. You know, as parents, I'm still a fairly young parent. My eldest are five years old. But I already see that I am not cut out. I'm, I'm, I'm not sufficient to do what God is asking me to do. I, I can't do it. I can't be everything that I ought to be for my children. I can't do everything that I feel like I ought to do for them. I'm not perfect. I had a bout this week where I was getting too angry with my kids. It was a couple of nights in a row where when they would not... Bedtime is typically a struggle. And, and I, I was allowing it to get to me. 
a little bit. My boy is starting to become a boy. And raising a boy is different from raising a girl. And we've had two girls. Our boy is now two and a half years old, and he's becoming more of a boy. And that's... a. I'm having to change the way I handle things a little bit with the boy. And I was getting angry. And after a couple of days of this, the Lord smote my heart. I had to go to my children. I had to sit them down. I had to say, Dad was being angry. I was disciplining in anger, and I need your forgiveness. And I had to ask for them to forgive me. Because I'm not perfect, and I won't be perfect. And I can't be perfect. But you know what I also do know? That as I'm doing my best, and I'm doing it God's way, to the best of my ability, with his help, walking in fellowship with him, doing my best for him, being consistent, unhypocritical, humble, sincere. God can make up the difference. And don't you think he wants to? Isn't that the principle that we see throughout scripture? Try me, prove me. You do your part, I'll do mine. Secondly, Not only has God designed and commanded faith to pass from one generation to the next, but those who are given responsibility, and make no mistake, they are also given accountability. If you're responsible, you're also accountable. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Paul writes, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Paul was speaking of the, the ministry that God had given him, the stewardship God had given him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But in every area of life where God has made you responsible, he has given you responsibility, he also expects you to be found faithful to it. God has made you a parent. God has brought you to Legacy Baptist Church. God has put you into this fellowship. God has asked you to be a leader in some capacity. Whether it's a leader at work, whether it's a leader at home, whether it's the wife as a helpmeet to your husband, delegated responsibility, whether it's the husband who is directing the home, whether it's me as a pastor, God has given us responsibilities, stewardship, and to whatever degree he's given us stewardship, he expects us to be faithful. Every aspect of life, this is it. If you have talents and abilities that God has given you, God expects you to be faithful. If God has given you a mind to think, God expects you to be faithful with it. If God has given you the capacity for uh, writing or for drawing or for music, whatever it might be, God wants you to be found faithful in that because God gave it to you. It's a gift. It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Jesus taught on this in Luke chapter 12. In verses 42 to 48, we read this. The Lord said, Who then is faithful and wise? whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth in his coming, he shall begin to beat the men servants and the maid servants, and to eat and drink and to be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whom much is given, of him shall much be required." excuse me, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, 
of him they will ask the more. To whom much is given, much is required. The one who is more accountable, more responsible, given more responsibility, knows more, is also more accountable for what he knows. For what and he's expected. There's more expected of him. Now we know this in life, right? We know this as we raise our kids. We know this as we, if, you're, if, if you have any position of authority, the more authority you have, the more you're responsible for. The more a person knows, if you, if you tell a person everything they need to know, then you'll expect them to be accountable for what you've told them. If you didn't tell them, then, well, how can they be responsible for that which you didn't tell them? But if you've told them, then they're responsible. Jesus is saying the same thing here. When God gives you gifts, positions, abilities, those come with accountability. And look, if you have been given children, those children are your responsibility. God has given them to you. He's entrusted them to you. You're accountable to him for them. Third principle of spiritual instruction. Those exposed to authentic truth are more likely to identify that truth. This is the final principle that I would like for us to consider. We could probably flesh out many, many more. But this is the last one I'd like for you to think about this morning. We know from scriptures that the whole of the created order is aware of God, right? All of the created order knows that God exists. Psalm 19.1 excuse me, says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 and 2 informs us that there are three elements that testify of God. Creation, conscience, and His Word. Creation, conscience, and His Word. Creation testifies of God. You look around you, you can't but help know that there's a God. It's ironic that one of the greatest ways in which people try to disprove God today is through creation, right? Through the theory of evolution. But if you look at creation, the creation, created world that is around us, it is designed. You cannot help but know that it's designed. It has to be designed. There's too many symbiotic relationships. There's too many coincidences there. The very fact that you can hear me as my vocal cords are making these tones that are resonating in your ears. And not only that, but do you know that they're all resonating the same way? Now, you may not all interpret what I'm saying the same way. I'm often amazed at what people think I say. They come a couple weeks later and say, well, you told us this from the pulpit. And I say, when did I tell you that? And they'll tell me what I said. And, and I realize, wow, you, you got that from that. I need to be more careful. And then my kids, it's, it's always amazing what they, what they pick up from what I say. But you're hearing the same thing unless you have a, an ear problem. Now, if we were a bunch of random chance processes and we were all an accident, can we really believe that for generation after generation after generation, the way my vocal cords are forming sounds and going into your ears would be consistent among all of us? That's not random chance process. That's design. The eye, the hands, my fingers are moving at the impulse of something in my head that's telling them to do so. I don't have to think about it. I just They're doing it. That's not an accident. I mean, we could, take, we could, we could talk about thing after thing. That's not why we're here today. But creation declares God. Conscience, the very fact that we are moral beings, declares, testifies to the fact that there is a higher morality. There must be a higher moral authority 
Because we recognize that there is something called morality. If we are just evolved beings, if there is no God, if there's no higher authority, then there's no morality. And it really doesn't matter whether I love my neighbor or eat my neighbor. Whatever's best for me. Survival of the fittest, right? I've got a very old car in that parking lot that's many hundreds of thousands of miles into its lifespan. There are people in our congregation who have much newer cars... Now, why shouldn't I, because it would be best for me, kill you and take your car? That's what's best for me. Well, it would be wrong. Says who? If there's no moral authority, well, then says who? How can you say that my perception of you as being in the way of me in a new car is any more valid than your perception that you want to keep your new car and I need to keep my my old man. Well, because there's a higher moral authority. The law of God written on our hearts is what Romans 2 says it is. There is a moral authority and everyone knows it. You can try to, you can pretend like you don't. Romans 1 talks about that. Having known God, they glorified him not as God. It's not that they don't know that there's a God, it's that they've rejected the, the, the evidences of God. Creation, conscience, and then the word of God. These testify of God. Now, we've seen already that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We see that in the world around us all the time. Your children will be able to, at some point, easily explain away in this, in this culture creation and conscience. And that's where the word of God, through the ministry of the Spirit of God, comes in. And to those who have the word of God around them regularly, there is a great advantage to identifying truth. Paul speaks of the need to share the gospel in Romans chapter 10. Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is speaking about the nation of Israel and how they have not received that for which they were promised in the Old Testament. And as he teaches in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he says, Israel, the nation, still will eventually receive the promises that God has laid out for them. And as he gives this exposition, he talks about salvation. And he says this in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all, that would be Israel, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias saith, Lord, that would be Isaiah, who hath believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what the word of God tells us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We won't believe that which we haven't heard and we won't hear it unless the word of God is proclaimed. And it stands to reckon then that those who are most regularly exposed to the accurate truths of God's word, not just vocally, but by example are those who will understand best, have the greatest opportunity to identify these things as truth, and then to believe them for themselves. So we have these three principles. God has designed and commanded faith to pass from one generation to the next. Those who are given responsibility are also given accountability. Those who are exposed to truth are more likely to identify that truth. I don't think there's anything there that is... Hard. 
that, that, that we would wrestle with necessarily. You may wrestle with how I've talked about it or, or whatnot, but I don't think there's anything there that any of us would say, wow, I, I really don't agree with that point. With these principles in mind, who's responsible for this spiritual instruction? Well, we go back to Deuteronomy 6. We're memorizing verses 4 and 5 for this month. Verses 6 through 9 tell us this. God speaking, he says, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest down in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. Now the command in Israel was to keep the commandments of the Lord ever before the eyes of one's children, passing down the essential truths of God and His Word from generation to generation. Now the Orthodox Jews have taken this quite literally today, right? They actually write the Word of God on the doorposts of their house. They have the little phylacteries that they put on their heads to have the Word of God in a little box on their foreheads. All of those things so that it's always between their eyes, so that it's always on their doorposts, those sorts of things. But that's not really what God is saying here. What God is saying here is that as those who are responsible for the next generation, it is our privilege to keep the Word of God relevant to every circumstance, every instance, at every point of the day, God's Word has the preeminence. Not just on Sundays when they come to church, but every day, all day. Every motivation that we have, every action that we do, everything that we decide, our decisions, our actions, our words, is filtered through and founded upon the Word of God. Every love, every hate, every loyalty, every rejection... Founded upon the commands of God. The commands of God were to be seen in the family. Not just as a part of their lives, but the very essence of their lives. Their lives were to flow through the commandments of the word of God. Why do they do what they do? How is it that they exist? Their existence functioned in order to obey and bring about the will and the word of God. That was God's design. And in doing so, he could bring about what we quoted this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 5, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. The commands of God were to be seen in the family not just as a part of their lives but as the essence of their lives. Now as the chapter continues, verse 20 says that the fathers were then to establish memorials of God's faithfulness so that when the children as they were living out their days they'd look and they'd see something and it looked a little bit out of place and they'd say hey dad why is that there and the father could then use that memorial in the years to come to testify of God's goodness this is the time that there was a famine in the land and the Lord provided for us so I set up a memorial this was the time where we needed something and God gave it to us so I set up a memorial this was the time that God showed himself faithful as God always does and so I set up a memorial and so the kids would walk through and they would not just have to see what God had done today, but as they were walking across their land, they would literally see memorial after memorial after memorial of God's faithfulness to them and to their family. And they would say, look, God has been faithful from well before I was here. God had been faithful. And if he's been faithful to my parents and I've seen his faithfulness and he's been faithful for that long. And by the way, they lived on the same plot of land multi-generationally, right? Which meant there's grandpa's memorials. And there's great-grandpa's memorials. And there's great-great-great-grandpa's memorials. Look at how long God has been faithful to my family. It must be true. It's true. And I've seen it. And it's true. 
In the New Testament, we find instruction as well. But before that, excuse me, let me go to Proverbs before we hit the New Testament. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 17, we read this. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Continuing. And betimes, by the way, means in proper season. It means at the right time. It means appropriately. That's what it means. And so the, the, the proper father chastens his son in due season, at the appropriate times. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. The principle laid down in these verses is is that parents are the ones with the responsibility not only to instruct their children in the way that they should go, but then also to discipline their children in the way that they should go, to correct their children in the truths of God's word. To discipline, to correct one's own children is to love them, to protect them, and indeed to deliver their souls from the kinds of choices that lead to spiritual destruction, and if never tempered, and they continue to make those wrong choices, eventually spiritual destruction. What parent will sit and smile as they watch their child put their hand on a hot burner? No parent would do that. The parent will take the appropriate measure necessary to stop his child, even so far as to smack that child's hand to keep that child from putting their hand on the hot burner. Why? Because the temporary pain of smacking a child's hand is far less of a problem than the scars that will come from placing his hand on a hot burner. The temporary pain of yanking that child back from the fire would be far less of a problem in the long term, than the pain that would come from him getting in the fire. That sometimes as parents, we must correct our children to keep them from something greater, to keep them from something worse. And if we are looking through the lenses of the Spirit, we understand that there are spiritual dangers, that there are spiritual problems that lay ahead of our children that they must be corrected with when it's easy and small, lest it become something bigger. In other words, I wonder how many people that I sit across from in in the jail every week when I counsel there might not be there if their parents had just disciplined them from stealing the cookie instead of waiting until they stole the TV for society to tell them that there's something wrong with stealing. If their parents had taught them to be temperate when it was just candy... Maybe they could learn temperance when it comes to substances. If they were disciplined when they were younger and the consequences were minimal, maybe they wouldn't be suffering the great consequences later on in life. More principles. Instruction. The parent's responsibility. We as parents are responsible to raise our children, to discipline our children, to correct our children. We carry this principle into the New Testament with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Don't provoke them to wrath. Uh, Don't frustrate your children. Don't uh, correct them for things you haven't even told them is wrong. We talk about this sometimes with pets, right? If you've ever tried to train a pet, one of the things they say is when a pet does something that they've not been trained not to do, don't 
discipline them in the same way you would discipline them for something they have been told not to do, you'll confuse the, the dog. You'll confuse him because you're disciplining for, for things that you haven't told him not to do. And you're giving him the same discipline for things you have told him not to do. You're going to confuse him. How much more are children? They do something for the first time. I've never told them not to do that. Children are very creative in, in, in the ways that they can disobey, right? Well, teach them. Don't, don't provoke them to wrath by confusing them, by them having to, to try to hit a moving target. You never know what dad's going to be like today. Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be uh, in a good mood? Is he going to spank me for that? Or is he just going to uh, shrug his shoulders and walk the other way? Sometimes it's, it's this way. Sometimes it's this way for the same offense. Look, if we're inconsistent like that, our children are going to be confused and they're going to get discouraged. They're going to get discouraged. But this is the responsibility that we do have. To bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Nurture, that means education and training. Admonition, that means warning and rebuke. Teach them and rebuke them when, they, when they're doing wrong. Teach them positively and teach them negatively. Teach them what to do. Teach them what not to do. I wish we could get into all the theories today. Talk about Pavlov's dogs. Talk about the blank slate. Talk about all of those things. We can't. Next week we're going to get into some history, some philosophy. Not enough. You're going to have to do some research on your own if you want to go there. But the Bible tells us we need to educate them, train them, and we need to rebuke them and warn them. This is the responsibility of the father, delegated then to the wife, to the parents as a whole, raising your children. I have preached several sermons on this at LegacyBaptistChurch.net on the archive pages if you want to learn more. Um, And then certainly I could point you to many good books to read as well. The next natural question that we have to ask, and we must hasten on here. What is the church's role in all of this? And see, the church has a role too, don't they? In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we read this. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God gave the apostles and prophets, we know from Ephesians Excuse me. We know from earlier in the book of Ephesians as the foundation of the church, that the church is founded upon the apostles and prophets. We would recognize that the church does not need a foundation today. That foundation is laid in the writings of the apostles and prophets. They have since passed away. However, the evangelist and the pastor teacher are yet in effect today. Those are, are the ministries or the offices that God has given to build or to grow the church, to be a part of the structure, not the foundation, that's the apostles and prophets, but the structure of the church, that is the evangelist and the pastor teacher. And notice the reason, notice what they are called to do, to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. If you look into the original languages here, that is one phrase. There is a comma there, and that can kind of make it seem as though there's three roles here, but really it's this, to perfect the saints to do the work of the ministry. It's not my job to do the work of the ministry in this church. It's my job to perfect you to do the work of the ministry. It's not, I'm, I'm not your hired gun to win this area to Christ. I'm the man that has been called by God to teach you how that we can win this area to Christ. That's my role as a pastor teacher. To perfect the saints. That word perfection we know from scripture does not mean sinless perfection. It means completion. Finished or complete. Having all that is necessary to its nature or kind. That's what that word means. To 
make you a completed Christian, able to do the work of the ministry. Secondly, to edify the body of Christ. To edify, to sharpen, to help through conviction, counsel, rebuke, guidance. This is the job of the called men of God, the evangelist and the pastor teacher. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul calls the church the pillar and the ground of truth. We are, as a church, as a minister, I am here to perfect you to do the work of the ministry and to help you, edify you, counsel you, rebuke you when necessary, shepherd you. That's what a pastor does. We as a church are to be the pillar and the ground of truth. The pillar and the foundation. The two most important parts of any building. You don't have a foundation, the building falls over. You don't have pillars, the roof collapses. The pillar and the ground of truth. We hold the line on truth. That's what the church is here to do. To establish, to declare truth. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office... So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. The text goes on to teach about various spiritual gifts that Paul would list there. He lists prophecy, the foretelling of God's word, faith, ministry, teaching, exhortation, ruling, and mercy. And he says that we all have various gifts, and those gifts are to be used as members of one body. You're a member, I'm a member. You have gifts, I have gifts. We come together, we combine those gifts, we become a functioning body. Imagine if your body was made of all kneecaps. It'd be hard for you to get anything done. Imagine if your body was all ears. You couldn't say anything, you couldn't see anything. Imagine if your body was all eyes. You couldn't say anything, you couldn't hear anything. The body, a body, has to be made up of many members. Diverse members each doing their part to make the body function. He would say a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free. We have been all made to drink into one Spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. And he would go on to describe in verses 25 and 26 that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another, and whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all members rejoice with it. When a wide receiver's hand does a great thing on the football field, his whole body gets the credit. They don't say, wow, that wide receiver's hand is really... Fantastic. They say, wow, that wide receiver is really fantastic, right? When an orator has a great speech, they don't say, wow, that guy's mouth is really something special. They say, wow, that guy did a good job. The whole body gets credit for what the individual members of the body combined together make happen. We are a body. We function. We are two. We are designed to function As one. When one member suffers, all members suffer. When your knee hurts, it's not just your knee. That's that's the problem, right? It makes your whole, it, it, it hinders your whole body from functioning when your knee has a problem. It hinders your whole body from functioning when you stub your toe. It consumes the mind. It makes something come out of your mouth, hopefully not a problem, right? It 
you, you, you lose, tr- you, you lose your, your train of thought. You're, you're limping around. You might even have to completely divert what you're doing to sit down and to deal with that toe until it feels better. Tape it up, whatever it might be. One member suffering, the mem- all the members suffer. One member honored, all the members are honored. This is how the church is supposed to function. So the natural challenge then is this. How do we unify what God has commanded the blood family to be with a a parent, a mom, and a dad? The two shall be one flesh. The father and mother shall leave, uh, uh, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. And then they have children and they become a family unit. And that family unit, God has given the parents responsibility to raise up the children in the way that they should go, to not provoke them under wrath, but to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How do we take that responsibility of blood family and combine it with the church's responsibility, me as the pastor, to edify the saints of God, to guide each one of you in the way that you should go. Our children here, the vast majority of the children here, are born-again believers, which means they are individual units before God, right? There are no, there's no such thing as spiritual grandchildren. No child will get into heaven because their parent is saved. No parent will get into heaven because their child accepted Christ. These children are individual spirits that have an individual relationship with God that the church is supposed to nurture and help and guide and lead. How do we reconcile the church's responsibility to be members of a body, to exhort one another, to love one another, to lead one another, to pastor, one, to pastor and to shepherd and to edify and to rebuke and to, to encourage and all of these things? How do we reconcile that with the family's responsibility? Well, that leads us to two different philosophies. I'm going to present the philosophies today. Of course, you know them. Next week, we'll talk about why we believe one is better than the other. The first philosophy is the age-segregated model. The age-segregated model says this. Children are separated by different age. That thus separates them by maturity level for the purpose of instructing them on their own level. How do we reach the kids and the adults at the same time? Well, we split the kids from the adults. We teach the kids their thing. We teach the adults their thing. In order to facilitate growth, not only of the child, but also of the parents, we split into age groups so that they can interact with people going through a similar time of life. The elderly interact with the elderly. The, um, uh, the newlyweds interact with the newlyweds. The young uh, kids interact with young kids. The, the high schoolers interact with high schoolers. And we break them up by time in life so that you can find people that, that are going through the same things you're going through. Parents are placed on a different spiritual path than their children. Children are expected to memorize, right? We have Awana or King's Kids or uh, Kids for Truth or all, all sorts of programs that are out there. Kids are expected to memorize the scriptures, but never parents. When pastor says, hey, come out, go, come out and go door knocking, the parents are the ones he's talking to. Not so much their children. So parents are learning different things. They're with people of their same age group, general season of life. The parents are doing certain things spiritually. The kids are doing other things spiritually. And the parents don't necessarily know everything that's happening with the kids, because if you've ever had kids and you say, what did you do today? You're not going to learn a whole lot from your kid that way. How was your day? Good. Okay, thanks. See you tomorrow. Right? What did you do today? Stuff. Okay. Have homework? Yeah. Okay. 
after these activities that the parents and children do separate, and the teaching that the parents and do separate, and sometimes they come together, right? I, we, we're, we're not here to say that there's no merit to this model. Many churches, they, they break up for Sunday school, or they only break the youngest kids out for Sunday school. The rest of the family stay together. You still have youth activities and such, where the kids go off on their own. They're with their own uh, groups for activities and such, but they come together for teaching. There's many different variations to this model. Some work better than others. But that's the general model. At some point, the parents and the kids meet back together, and it's expected that the church, the parents, handed off responsibility to the church, to a youth pastor, to a Sunday school teacher, to train up their children in spiritual things. Now the youth pastor or the Sunday school teacher is handing that responsibility back to the parent, and the parent takes over for the rest of the week. They go home, they take over, they do it. That's the model. And that's not necessarily, in and of itself, a problem. You've got godly men that are leading these kids that truly take their responsibility seriously, that are informing their parents. Their parents know exactly what's being taught. Their parents actually have a mindset that says, I am still responsible to raise my kids. This can work great. But what we'll talk about next week is that's very rare. That's very rare that that actually happens in an age-segregated model. You can look at public schooling. You can look at age-segregated church. It's very rare that parents really, really stay deeply involved in what their children are learning. And keep that, that mindset of, I am completely responsible for this. We'll talk about that. So that's one way that we merge family and church. So that both the church and the family are, are maintaining their responsibilities before God to raise and nurture up these children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What we propose is that we don't create new layers. That instead of creating these new layers where parents and children are separated and then come back together at some point, instead of the church doing their thing and the parents doing their thing, we simply keep it together. That in this model, the responsibility is absolutely never taken off the plate of the parents. And more broadly, the elders to teach the next generation. So the family comes to church together and they learn of Christ together. The parents naturally will understand more of what's being taught than the children because the pastor has to communicate to everyone. But what the pastor is going to trust is that as I communicate to the parents, the parents will then take that which is necessary of that communication and get it to their kids and help their kids and guide their kids in the way that it should go. So instead of us having one Sunday school teacher who is trying to guide several children in the way that they should go, not knowing their children's needs, propensities, character, spiritual uh, direction, not knowing what the parents have been working on them with at home, the pastor gets up and he simply says what the Word of God tells us, and then the parent takes what the Word of God has said and says, Aha! This is what we were talking about this week. Remember, kids? That's exactly what pastor was saying today. Here's another passage of scripture that we can see that from. And the parents stay together. And then not only that, but they minister together. So instead of us saying, well, kids, you need to memorize scripture. And we'll talk about that more next week. It's one of my pet peeves with, with uh, age-segregated ministry. Kids, you need to memorize scripture. But you know what? There's coming a point in time where you're old enough to not need to ever do that again. 
because they've never seen their parent ever one time memorize a verse. And so they just say, oh, I can't wait till I'm old enough to not have to do this Christian thing that everyone should be doing. Or a kid says, well, I love to tell people about Christ, but I'm not old enough to go door knocking. And so instead of that, our parents say, hey, I've got an idea. You need to learn how to tell others about Christ, so why don't you come with me? Just listen and learn. And hey, what are you memorizing this week? I'm going to help you. We're going to memorize that together. I bet I can memorize it before you can. Let's see who can memorize it first. So he, who can say it word perfect first. And now what are the kids seeing? Christianity is a way of life. This is normal. I'm a Christian. I'm becoming what a Christian is. My parents memorize scripture. I'm going to do that too because that's what a normal Christian does. My parents tell others about Christ, so I'm going to do that too because that's what a normal Christian does. They know their pastor. Their pastor is not just some guy that stands up there way far away that you never, ever, ever, ever talk to. And then at the front of the church when he's shaking hands with everyone, you kind of try to duck out and not shake his hand because you don't know the guy. Instead, the family knows the pastor. The pastor knows the family. He knows their names. He knows what's going on. Because he's their pastor too, because this is the instruction that they get every week. And the elders and such, as the church would get bigger. Right now, we're just a pastor. Lord willing, at some point, that that might change. So when everybody leaves, not only do the parents know what the children have learned and can help them grow, but the children know what the parents have learned and can watch as the parents put it into practice. I saw my father hear a message, recognize that that's not what our family was doing, and change the way our family is living in order to be what the Bible says we should be. What a testimony. But if dad just comes home one day and says, we're changing this because of something he heard in the service, but the kids weren't there, well, the thing's still going to change. That's good. But what if the kids had been there to hear what the Word of God said and to see that their father was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and he changed something that their family was doing to conform to the Word of God? That's powerful. That's that third principle that when people, when when they're surrounded by truth, they are more likely to accept it because they've seen it and that's powerful. We don't want our children to not know what's happening in our spiritual lives any more than we don't want us as parents to not know what's happening in our children's spiritual lives and especially in that direction, right? Because you are accountable. I will not, I will stand before God one day and I will answer for what I've said to this church according to the word of God. I will. And that sends a, every time I say that, it sends a chill down my spine. I'm not, that, that, that's, that's not, that's a hard thing. In James, it says, be not many masters. That word means teachers, knowing they shall receive the greater condemnation. I will receive the greater condemnation because I am a teacher of the word of God. I'm accountable for that. Parents, you're accountable for your children. You are. You will answer to God for how you raise them. That should matter. And that should change the way you think about church. Doesn't necessarily mean you will implicitly or explicitly take on the model that we think is best. But that's why we are what we are. Because it's that important to us. Now, I believe we all pretty well agree with the principles of instruction. 
I'm going to have somebody email me or text me or something and say, nope, you were off, Pastor. You missed it. I know, but that's okay. God has designed and commanded faith to pass from one generation to the next. Those who have been given account, uh, responsibility are also given accountability. Those who are exposed to authentic truth are more likely to identify with that truth. I think that we should pretty much agree there. Next time we'll dig into a little bit more deeply the problems that we have identified in age segregation that we believe make this harder. But as we close, let me just ask this, because we, we want, when, when we read the Word of God, it ought to be a threefold process. You read it, you, you seek to understand it, and then you figure out how it applies to you. It should be that way every time. If you've ever noticed on our slides, you have an understanding and then you have an application section. Why? Well, because understanding without application doesn't do you any good. Application without understanding doesn't do you much good either. Read it, understand what it's saying, then figure out how that touches you. And that's what a lot of pastors and churches fail to do today. They fail to hit application. What does this mean for me? Or they're so busy saying what you should do in application that they forget to tell you why you should do it. Understanding what's going on here. We need both. So parents, how are you doing at leading your children in the way that they should go? There's, we're trying to merge two responsibilities here. Parents, and let me just bring us to the second one too. Church. How are we doing at perfecting the body for the work of the ministry? How are we doing as parents? How are we doing as a church? And how are we doing at merging them together so that the young people in this room will carry the torch of the faith of the truth of God's word into the next generation? How are we doing at being parents? How are we doing at being a church? How are we doing at bringing them together so that our children will love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their might? That's what matters. That's all that matters. How are we doing? Maybe the Holy Spirit has touched something, put his thumb on something in your lives. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't be the Holy Spirit. But you have the Holy Spirit if you're saved, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. If you haven't, I encourage you to come talk to me about that. If the, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you need to be saved. But if you are a believer and the Holy Spirit has put His finger on something and said that needs to change, that is a problem. Whether it's a part of what you are in the family or whether it's a part of what you are in the church. Let's be sensitive to the Spirit. Let's allow the Spirit of God to do that work. You don't have to make a decision right now. As a matter of fact, in some ways, I would encourage you not to. Take some time. Pray about it. Think about it. Make sure you're serious. Make sure, make sure it's not just emotion. Make sure God is telling you something. Don't let it go. Don't just walk out of here and just leave it be. But this is serious stuff. This is not just your kids. This is not just the next generation of your family. Fill in the, the surname. This is the church. This is the next generation of the church. This is us leading our children into effectiveness for Christ, for his kingdom, for the world, to know of him. And this is serious stuff.
And that's why we're talking about it. Uh, this all started on the church picnic day when I preached a message about a young king, and we'll talk more about it in two weeks, who, was, who did great until his spiritual mentor died. And after his spiritual mentor died, he just left it. He left following the Lord. He, he completely collapsed. His spiritual life collapsed. What we pinpointed there is that there was a young man who followed the Lord as long as his spiritual mentors were guiding him, but as soon as his mentor wasn't there, he didn't have his own personal faith to carry it through. And so I warned and I exhorted you, young people, make sure the faith is your own. Make sure you're transitioning it. Parents, help your children transition. And I got many people afterwards that said, yes, pastor, I agree. How do we do that? How do we help our children transition their faith from our faith to theirs, from the church to them? The big message on that will be in two weeks, not next week, but the week after. But that's why we're doing this. Why are we a non-age segregated church? Because that is what we want to do, is pass along the faith. Make our children strong in the faith, on their own two feet, so that when they're confronted with their own decisions, and mom and dad aren't there, and pastor's not there, and the church friends are not there, that you're going to make the right decisions, not because of your church, or because of your parents, or because of your pastor, but because you love God. Because of your God. Because of who He is and what He's told you. That's when it's yours. That's when it's real. That's what we want. That's why we are what we are. Next week we'll talk more about it. We'll talk about why we aren't what most are. And why we believe it will be beneficial to our children, to us, to our church in the end. Let's close in prayer.